was a couple that was celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary, and a genie appeared and said, I will grant you each one wish. And so she said, oh, I want to travel the world, and poof, plane tickets were laying all over. So the man, the husband, noticed that, so seeing his wife's wish was granted, he said, I want a wife 30 years younger, and poof, he was 90. <laughs> Okay. All right, I'm sure some of you have taken advantage of the ancestry research through the convenience of your home computer to be able to look back many generations and find out where you've come from and what your families have done. And this has become a great hobby for a lot of people. The truth is that we learn a lot from history, whether it's our personal family history, the history of our country, the history of the world. And God has seen fit to give us the, the history of the early church and Christianity with the inspired words of Luke, the historian. Luke writes to Theophilus as he continues the history that he started with the Gospel of Luke account. In the Gospel account, he wrote about all Jesus taught and did. In the book of Acts, he continues to record the historical accounts, as one writer put it, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Holy Spirit through his apostles. If we did not have this book of transition in the scriptures, we would be very confused. If you went from reading the Gospels to the book of Romans, we'd be like, well, who's Paul and what are these churches doing in these places? How did they get there? So the book of Acts takes us through all of that transition as the work of God goes on, uh, dealing with the nation of Israel, and then the establishment of something new that was a mystery in the Old Testament, that is the church. So we begin our study with the early believers in Jerusalem, but we'll end this study seeing the gospel advanced into the uttermost parts of the earth. This great task of the Great Commission could never be accomplished by sheer human determination or even skills in speech. There has to be a spiritual power to overcome fear, temptation, discouragement, and there has to be power at work in the hearts of those who would hear the gospel message so they'd respond. So we will look at the history of how the work of Jesus Christ continues in verses 1 and following. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke gave his first account uh, as the Gospels that we know of his earthly life and teaching. And now Jesus continues to teach and prepare his men, even during this time post-resurrection, before he ascended to heaven. I guess I never really thought about that, that there were 40 days, that ongoing training and explanation and teaching and helping them to see everything that had to be fulfilled about him uh, was taught by a risen Savior. So the Holy Spirit <clears throat> was the key to their continuing the work that Jesus would give them to do. He had actually given them orders, which meant he commanded them uh, to wait for the promise of the Father that they would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He had gifted them, gifted them he had enabled them, they were eyewitnesses of the truth of God's revelation to a lost world. So the events that took place while they were still waiting in Jerusalem, in verse 3 we read, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days 
and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom. So I love that. Jesus taught more and more truth. The impact of seeing Jesus throughout that 40-day period on the apostles was absolutely amazing, convincing them, tremendously so, of the physical resurrection of Jesus. Uh, they would have to have this kind of assurance if they were going to be bold in their witness for Christ. Remember, these are the same guys hiding out, afraid, in the upper room that the Romans are going to arrest them or the Jewish religious leaders will. But now they're not afraid. In his resurrected body, Jesus taught them more truths about the kingdom of God. The promised kingdom to Israel would be a reality one day. But now would begin the times of the Gentiles where God will have spiritual rule in the hearts of believers in his church. The final phase of his kingdom will come when Jesus sets up his throne here on earth in a thousand year millennial reign, fulfilling all the promises he ever made to the nation of Israel as the spiritual and physical become one kingdom. Now they waited for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which you heard of from me. You know, you read the Gospel accounts, Jesus spoke many times about, I must leave, and the Holy Spirit will come, he'll come alongside of you, the paraclete, the comforter. He's the one who's going to come, and he'll convict the world of sin, and he'll bring to your remembrance the things that I have taught you. He'd be the one to bring comfort and minister to believers. So no, no doubt these men were ready to head out and tell the world that they've just spent 40 days with the risen Jesus. He is the Messiah. However, to go out in one's own strength without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit would prove inadequate and fruitless. Jesus went on to say in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, these men had already experienced, certainly, the Holy Spirit enabling them to do amazing things when they went out for their mission uh, by two. Yet here they are told to wait for the Spirit as the birth of the church is about to happen. This was a unique transition as they waited. The Old Testament had spoken of the work that the Holy Spirit would do. Jesus had spoken of this to them, and John the Baptist as well. These apostles were qualified because they were appointed by Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of all of his historical earthly ministry. And then they were commissioned and empowered by Jesus to go and teach. These are the men Luke is introducing to the world as he writes about all that went on in Acts. Notice they didn't use this time of just pleading and begging for the Holy Spirit to come. The rest of scripture teaches that the baptism by Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit is what happens to every believer the moment they put their faith and trust in Christ. Every believer is placed into, identified with, um, the body of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 12 states. And then the Spirit lives inside every believer. Uh, this is made clear in Romans 8, 9. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not born again. There is a divine action that takes place, not by human effort, but by grace alone at the moment of our salvation. So the presence of the Holy Spirit was absolutely essential for the work that Jesus began to continue. The apostles had already experienced the work, as I said, in their salvation, in his guiding them and teaching them, and his giving them miracle-working power. But they were to receive the power that they would need to carry out a very unique apostolic ministry from the Holy Spirit. So waiting in Jerusalem, they asked their last questions to Jesus. 
They wanted to know, in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now that the risen Messiah is with them again, they're eager to see the earthly kingdom finally come to be a reality. There really wasn't an understanding of the large gap of time between the Messiah's first coming and his second coming. Jesus had just again promised the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they were familiar with verses from like Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, which we'll see Peter quote next week in our, mess, in our lesson as he preaches at Pentecost. Certainly the coming of the Spirit would imply that the kingdom was soon to come as well. So they needed more clarification. They were thinking about Israel um, and the kingdom being set up not the Romans still being in power. Notice Jesus doesn't correct them and doesn't say to them, oh, you know what, there's actually no literal kingdom. I didn't really mean that in the Old Testament. That's really the church. And that's not what he said. He continued to teach them about the real kingdom coming to Israel. He taught that in Matthew 19, Luke 19, and 22. And here we just re read that Jesus had been instructing them about the kingdom. Jesus said in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or epochs when the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. There is a future kingdom coming. But Jesus is trying to get them to see that the time is not what is critical for them to know. Jesus answers them by redirecting their focus. They want to know when. Jesus wants to tell them how they're going to do the work he has given them to do. They would receive power. But power in God's kingdom is different than power in a human kingdom. They're not the same. The kingdom of God is the reality that he rules his people through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This kingdom is going to spread, not because of soldiers, but because of witnesses. A witness is someone who sees something and tells others what they have seen. And Jesus is telling them, stop dwelling on the things that are going to come and the future kingdom, and instead focus on being a witness for Christ. Sadly, much of Christendom, as I mentioned today, does not recognize a literal, real kingdom for Israel. But that simply is not taught here in scripture, and especially we studied Romans 9, 10, and 11. That is just not the case. Not everything has to be known by us ahead of time. The secret things do belong to God. We are to rest in the truths that have been revealed and leave what we don't know with him. What is important is having worldwide missions in our own hearts and in our own minds and realizing that we, where we are, are to be spirit-filled believers who share what we have seen in the work of Jesus Christ in our own lives and in the pages of scriptures. We are to tell what Jesus has accomplished when he first came so that people are prepared if they should die or be alive when he comes again. Notice it says, you shall be my witnesses. So if you do know Christ, then you are a witness for him. I guess the question really is, what kind of a witness are you for him? Are you one that actually shames him and you should just keep it quiet? So you don't ruin it for others who try to witness to people. We are to live lives that honor the Lord so that his word will not be dishonored or blasphemed. That's why we're, as First Peter talks about wives being submissive and First Timothy and Titus, so that women don't blaspheme the name of Christ and our behavior. 
So instructing his apostles, he tells them that their witness for him would start right where they were in the city of Jerusalem. Then it would spread to Judea, Samaria, and the whole world. This is the Great Commission. This little band of men is God's plan to change the world. As we study the rest of this book, we will see this verse being carried out. That's what we're watching happen in our study. And you know what? Each generation since then has been given this same great commission. And the reason we're here is because somebody told us, and you go back generation by generation by generation, it's because people have been a faithful witness to the ministry and who Jesus is. So before the spirit could come, the son had to leave. And it's at this is what happens next as Jesus ascends before their very eyes in chapter, uh, verses 9 through 11. After he'd said these things, he, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I'm kind of interested that they don't even really seem to acknowledge or think it's a big deal that two angels are standing there because they're just looking up. <laughs> I, you know, can you imagine what it must have been like, though, for these men? Jesus had just been speaking to them, giving them more truth, more understanding. And now, in his resurrected body, he returns to heaven to go to that place of all the glory he is deserving, seated at the right hand of God on high. These men of Galilee stood there transfixed. They're so intently gazing up into the sky. They're just watching. Jesus had completed his earthly ministry. He left the work he had begun in the hands of these men standing there watching. Now that Christ had left, the Holy Spirit could come as promised. Their eyes are so glued to the spot where Jesus was when he was in the clouds. So he had come and gone from them suddenly over the last 40 days, but now it was public and visible, his ascension, so they knew he was not coming back. He had gone to heaven. They weren't to wait to see him again. Rather, they were to wait for the Holy Spirit so they could carry out the mission he had given these men to do. So the angels next to them had to snap them out of this gaze and tell them he's going to return, just like Zechariah 14.4 predicted his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. He, he will return in the same way, accompanied by clouds. Daniel 7, Matthew 24, Revelation 1 and 14 all speak of this as well. This truth presented a high motive to do his will and live for his glory. Because you know what? Maybe he's coming back tomorrow, today, next week. They didn't know when. We don't know when. No one knows when he will return, so we must live each day in light of the reality that he may come in our lifetime. Second Peter 3.14 reminds us we must work the works of him who sent us, that is Jesus, as long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. This is our time. This is our spot in history, ladies, to carry out the Great Commission. His going before the apostles was a private gathering. When he returns, it's going to be completely different because we read every eye will see. In the tribulation, uh, much damage will happen to the moon and the stars and they won't shine. And he will come blazing through the sky with millions of his holy ones as he lights up the world at his return. So let's be careful ourselves to not be out of balance in our desire to know prophecy and future events. We must never be distracted from our primary God-given mission 
the work that he has left us here to do, and that is to be a witness here and where we can help it happen elsewhere. Well, we see the obedience of the apostles right away, and we see that prayer is their priority. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. These were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here they are with hearts full of joy. They did exactly what Jesus said, returned, and they're in this upper room. This was likely a particular upper room that they all were very familiar with, perhaps the one from Passover. So here are the 11 apostles with a number of women who had been faithfully following him throughout his ministry. The mother of Jesus and Jesus' half-brothers are there too. Originally, his brothers had not believed him to be the Messiah, but having seen him rise from the dead, um, they changed their minds. <laughs> so <clears throat> the total gathered there together praying was 120 people. Interesting that among these gathered there to pray and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit was Mary. She had the same need for the indwelling Holy Spirit as everybody else gathered there. You know what? There's no arguments going on. There's no discussions about who's the greatest. No one's sitting there talking about who blew it the worst when we all took off at the arrest. That's not where they were at. This group was united in prayer together. This small gathering of believers would be used to change the world. So we see the importance of all scripture being fulfilled in this last section. As Peter stands up in the midst and begins to tell them that the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. I really think this had to be so devastating still that their own, they were together. They really had no clue of who Judas really was. They'd been stealing from the money all along and they really didn't believe in their Messiah till he committed this treason. Peter becomes the spokesman for the group and explains they have a situation to attend to. One of their own was a traitor. This wicked act by Judas actually was a fulfillment of scripture. Jesus had explained to the men after the resurrection, Luke 24 says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wish we could have been there. So this wasn't a matter of Peter having an opinion. I think we should fill in the spot we're missing. But rather about every detail of scripture being fulfilled prophetically. That's because the word of God is absolute truth. You know, God wasn't taken by surprise because Judas became a traitor. That was all in God's predetermined plan and prophesied in scripture. Uh, but Judas was completely responsible for what he did. It didn't make like, oh, he was forced to have to do this because somebody had to do this because scripture said it would happen. No, he did it of his own accord. He decided to betray Jesus. This was the choice that Judas made and he was responsible for. You know, there are a lot of people today who are so similar in their thinking to Judas in the sense that they have had great opportunity to hear truth taught to them 
maybe their church, maybe their parents, maybe family and friends, they've seen lives change to people they know. So they've seen a reality to the gospel message. And yet, they're disappointed in who they think Jesus should be and what he should have done for them. And also the love of money, which is a temptation that creeps in for all. But so many times people walk away from the faith because Jesus didn't do what he needed them to do for them. I, almost a year ago now, uh, I was picking up my mom and I was outside on the sidewalk and this, her neighbor came running out screaming hysterical, just screaming and screaming and screaming and falling on the ground and calling out this lady's name and screaming. I went over to, my husband called 911. I went over to see what's wrong and she had hung herself in the doorway and was dead laying there. Um, the belt head broke. And he was obviously devastated. So at post that and trying to share the gospel with him and reach out to him, he said, you know what? I have nothing to do with Jesus. When my nephew took his life at 15, I walked, I said, I don't want anything to do with that kind of Jesus. He grew up in church. He grew up hearing the, tr the truth. This was the fourth person whom he loved dearly who had taken their life. So Jesus wasn't the God he wanted to be. So he still has nothing to do. I'm hoping as the anniversary of this comes up, a further opportunity to talk to him. But anyways, that is the mindset of a lot of people. I said I'd do the Jesus thing, and nothing really changed for the better, and so I'm, I'm done. But it's, the God, it's like their God. They're calling what Jesus has to do. It's a, it's a God of their own making and their own mind. Judas saw all the miracles. He heard the teaching of Jesus. Yet when Jesus didn't do what he wanted, he decided to use his inside status as a means to make money. Might as well get something out of it anyway. So the field that Judas obtained with the blood money caused it to be called a field of blood. It wasn't actually purchased by Judas, rather it was by the Jewish leaders from the money that they had paid Judas. Memory came back and threw it at them. So they weren't gonna keep this money you know, for themselves, so they bought a field and thus the field of blood. As you recall, Judas is overwhelmed by remorse and guilt, not repentance, but just full of guilt, and so he takes his own life. Matthew says he hanged himself, but Luke gives us a few more details about it. For, uh, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. So Luke adds some gruesome details regarding the death of Judas. And apparently, he had hung himself over a cliff, and either the rope or the branch broke and he fell to rocks below, and that was the result. So this tortured life and death of Jesus was foretold by David in Psalm 55, 69, and 109, 8, and promises let another man take his office. So that's what Peter is referring to here. Using proof of scripture, Peter gives compelling evidence that there was to be a replacement chosen all of which was part of God's plan. You had that question in your lesson today about whether it was right or wrong for Peter to do this. Some say, oh, he should have just waited for Paul, because it's obviously Paul was the guy who should have been the 12th. But scripture presented here by Peter should be clear enough answer that he was led by the Spirit. He was looking at what was to be fulfilled prophetically. Just because you never hear about Matthias again, Really, we actually don't really hear about too many of those other guys again, do we? I mean, we hear about Peter and John and James and I, the rest of the list. 
They did their work, but they're just not mentioned in scripture. So that led them to having a qualified replacement chosen, and it, and it had to be that these men had to have been accompanied the whole time Jesus started his earthly ministry, starting with John the Baptist all the way to his ascension, witnesses of the resurrection. So the replacement of Judas had to be an eyewitness and just seeing everything that everyone else had. Paul obviously did not meet those qualifications. At this point, he's, not, he's in his world of being a Pharisee. So in 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians 1, Paul makes it clear he was not one of the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles ministered mainly to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish nation, while Paul was sent to the Gentile world. We will see next time that these 12 witnesses um, at Pentecost, they will witness to all of the Jewish people in all of their different languages, so all the 12 tribes will hear about their risen, crucified and risen Savior. So those 12 men, we read, also will sit on 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel that it speaks of in Luke 22 and other places. So we will also see in our study of this book, really chapters two through seven, the primary witness is to Jewish people in Israel. And then once it goes on beyond the borders, the focus is on reaching the Gentile world. When the apostle James was martyred, he was not replaced in Acts 12. That's because the official witness to Israel was complete. The message would now go out to Jews and Gentiles alike. There was no longer he didn't keep replacing the apostles when they died. These were the original, they were the witnesses. They gave the witness at Pentecost and beyond. So they put the two men forward, uh, Joseph called Barsabbath, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and asked the Lord to reveal it, and he did it, fell on Matthias. And this uh, one comment I wanted to just read too, it says, you, you Lord, who know the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What sad words. And everyone who doesn't trust Christ will turn aside to go to the place that they have chosen. Very, very, very sad, sobering. It's likely that these two men were the only two who had the requirements. And as I said before, we read nothing about them anywhere else in scripture. They sought the Lord in prayer. And this was a common method of determining the Lord's will by casting a lot. They believe Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every direction, a decision is from the Lord. This is the last time this method was used in scripture. The indwelling Holy Spirit would really make this obsolete. The Lord's choice with Messiah was Matthias, which means gift of God. So as we go through this book, we're going to see many transitions from Old Testament uh, Judaism to the establishment of the church. We'll also see many uh, transitions about the apostles as they lay this foundation of the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. And every generation builds on top of that foundation that they laid. So it's important we understand the history of this book and the proclamation of the gospel as it goes beyond the borders of Israel. That was mind-bending to the Jewish people. That, that was out of their frame of thinking. It was just us. You know, a few Gentiles could proselytize. So this was a whole new way to think. The Great Commission was to be brought, the gospel brought to everyone. <clears throat> so we don't build a case for throwing lots to, to learn God's will because somebody did this here in scripture. And 
we, we have the completed scriptures now. We have the mind of God to help us discern his will. And we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us to lead us as well. So my few points of application is, or are, the commission Jesus gave was meant for you and I as well. You are a witness if you know Christ. It just is what kind of a witness are you? Silent, then nobody knows why you are what you are. They just think you're a good person because you don't say anything about what makes you the way you are. So it is so easy to keep silent, but we are commissioned, commanded to speak up for the Lord. And also, prayer is always a priority, always has been in scripture. Jesus taught so much about prayer. It's commanded, it's essential. We are all to be devoted to prayer as the early disciples and apostles were. I love the fact that this diverse group of people are all gathered praying with one mind. Men, women, Mary the mother of Jesus, half-brothers too, no one's more important than the other. It was a small band of believers that God was gonna change the whole world with. They obeyed Jesus, and so we're here today. One other thing, <clears throat> two other things. Every verse in scripture is inspired by God, and it matters down to the last detail, the last letter. It is all God-breathed. That's why studying it, memorizing it, knowing its content <clears throat> is so critical and important. Peter realized that, and that's why he wanted every detail that God had prophesied would be fulfilled. The complete heart attitude of the apostles changed when they saw the resurrected Christ. And this is a great evidence. You know, you may speak to people who say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead just because some men said he did. But these are the same men hiding in a room, scared to death. And now these guys have all boldness, courage. They'll be killed for their faith. They changed completely because they saw the risen Jesus. Before they were cowards who just hid. But now after 40 days of taught by a resurrected Messiah, they are committed to do whatever he commands. That's because Jesus is not dead. And when you come to see the resurrected Jesus for who he is in the pages of scripture, you will be forever changed. You can never stay the same. I don't know everyone's heart here. Obviously our desire is that each one of you would, by faith, know Christ personally, know that he is the one who paid your sin debt, that there is nothing you can do to earn favor with God or earn entrance into his heaven. It's what Jesus did on the cross and trusting him and his work alone <clears throat> that brings about the gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells. He leads you. He comforts you. He strengthens you. He guides you. That is the ministry that we are so blessed with. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this study that we are embarking on as we see how you're going to change the world through these men. Lord, I pray we live in a wicked world. It was wicked back then. It's wicked now. We just see and hear about all of it at such a greater detail. Lord, I pray that each one of us would truly be a witness <clears throat> right where we are in whatever place we live, whatever neighborhood we live in, and that we would be involved to make sure the gospel message is going out beyond our borders to those around the world. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that we're not out here trying to do a Christian life in our own strength. We thank you for his work in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.